Good morning. Our passage today is from 1 Samuel 15, and I want to focus our attention uh, on what we can learn from verses 20 and 21, but to get there, we're going to need to look at the chapter as a whole, so it will probably be helpful for you uh, to to actually get your Bible and turn to 1 Samuel 15 and uh, follow along with me as I unpack the story. Now, uh, there are three main points that I want us to walk away today grabbing a hold of. And I'm going to mention them now um, so that you have them in your mind as we go through this sermon. But we're going to get back to them at the end of the sermon also. The first point is that delayed or partial obedience is disobedience. Okay? The second point is that obedience is what God wants. Yes, he wants a humble and a contrite spirit that is willing to confess sin, but it's obedience that God is after, joyful, exuberant obedience. And number three, obedience is an act of faith. Obedience depends upon believing the promises of God. So keep that in the back back of your mind as we go through this passage today. So first, a little background about uh, 1 Samuel 15. The story begins with an interaction between Samuel the prophet and Saul the king. Now, Saul was the first king of Israel, and uh, the people of Israel had, had previously been ruled by judges, but they had cried out to God for a king, and God uh, eventually granted them their request. And he sent Samuel to anoint Saul as king over Israel. So there's, a, there's actually a, a, a real relationship between Samuel and Saul. Now who was Saul? It's, it's, scripture tells us that Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, and that he was tall and good-looking. He really stood out among the Israelites. In 1 Samuel 11... God gives Saul a military victory over the Ammonites. And there are a few things that will unite support around a leader like a military victory, right? We, we see this all throughout history. If, if there's a leader who has won a military victory, it's very likely he's got runs a really good chance of actually becoming the president or the prime minister or, or whatever uh, after, after that military victory because the people believe in him. Well, early on in Saul's kingship, God gave him victory, military victory over the Ammonites. And so any doubts about Saul's legitimacy as king were eliminated. He is the king and people are following him. So when we arrive in chapter 15, we learn that God has decided to use Saul to mete out justice on a people group called the Amalekites. In verse 2, we read, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. So who were the Amalekites? Well, do you remember the story uh, where Moses is leading the people of God through the desert, and he has Joshua fight against an enemy and and Moses has to lift up his hands and while Moses' hands are lifted up they're winning and when his hands are down 
They're losing, right? So, and so he has to have two men, one on each side, prop up his hands so that throughout the battle, Joshua and his army will, will win. Well, the enemy at that time, at that battle, were the Amalekites. It's the same people group. And God did give Joshua victory that day. Joshua defeated the Amalekites, but he didn't destroy them completely. Now, after that battle, God promised to utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heaven. That's, that's in Exodus 17. And later, in Deuteronomy, that same vow is repeated. <clears throat> it says... Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. So here in 1 Samuel 15, the day has come for the Lord to fulfill his promise to utterly blot out the memory of the Amalekites from the face of the earth. And he has commanded Saul to lead the charge. In verse 3 of 1 Samuel 15, it says, we, we read God's command to Samuel. And it says, Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him. But put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, before I go on, with um, the, the main point of my sermon, I, I, I feel that I must take a side uh, road and address the fact that many of you hate what God has commanded Saul to do here. And you therefore hate the God who has commanded him to do it. You can't, you can't separate God's commands from God himself. And so if you hate God's command here, you hate God. You hate the God who gave the command. And it's easy to see why we, we would uh, fight against this command, why it would make us uncomfortable, and why we would hate it. Uh, what God has commanded Saul to do is to commit genocide against the Amalekites, right? That is the definition of genocide, to wipe out, to target a particular group of people. If the United Nations had been around back then, Saul would have been put on trial for crimes against humanity. It's, they, wouldn't have, they wouldn't have cared, the United Nations wouldn't have cared or acknowledged that it was God who commanded him to do so. Um, that's, that's, what, uh, that's what would have happened. He would have been put on trial. Now, it's precisely this kind of passage that people point to when they're dismissive of the Old Testament. You hear it often, they, you say that the God of the Old Testament is vengeful and angry, and the God of the New Testament is compassionate and kind. Right? It's two different gods. They really have nothing to do with each other. And so therefore we can dismiss the Old Testament and, and leave it to the side. <clears throat> well, ladies and gentlemen, that is simply not true. It's just not true that the God of the Old Testament is different, is a different God than the God of the New Testament. We read that Saul was very careful to make a distinction between the Amalekites who had been marked out for judgment, and the Kenites, another people group who would, who would be spared. We read in, in, in 1 Samuel 15, verse 6, Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you with them. 
For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. What does this give us? This gives us a perfect example of how God works from the very beginning of time, throughout history, up until this very day. The wickedness of one group of people has reached a full measure, and so God has decided in his wisdom to, to, to bring judgment down upon them. He makes a distinction between them and between another group of people who he has decided to spare. God has been doing this from the beginning of time, and he still does it to this day. And if you think that Jesus is somehow above this, that somehow Jesus is more compassionate than, than God his Father, God, that Jesus is more compassionate than himself, um, then, then you're simply wrong. Matthew 25, Jesus says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put his sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The sheep on his right will go to heaven and be blessed forever in the presence of God. And the goats on his left will be cast into eternal destruction in hell. Now, folks, if you don't love that truth, then you cannot be a Christian. This is the God that we worship and that we sing about today in this service. We sang praises to this God. It's not some other God that is commanding Saul to destroy the Amalekites. It's the very same God that we sing about. God is always in the business of making distinctions between people and his judgments are righteous and just. So, coming back to the the main point of the sermon, um, God does give Saul and his army victory over the Amalekites that day. And he said to Saul, um, and it says that Saul utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. So far, so good, right? But we also learn in verse 9, back in 1 Samuel 15, it it reads this. It reads like this. Saul and the people spared Agag, that was the king of the Amalekites, and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed." So Saul simply did not obey God, did he? God had commanded complete destruction. Nothing from the Amalekites was to be preserved. All men, women, and children were to be killed, and Saul decided in his wisdom to spare the king. All livestock were to be completely destroyed, and Saul decided to keep the best back. Saul had disobeyed a direct command from God. Now, when Samuel, the prophet, learns of Saul's wickedness, he is distraught and spends the night crying out to God. We read in verse 12 that Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Okay, it's Houston... We have a problem, right? 
Samuel, the prophet of God, has spent the night weeping before God over Saul's sin and crying out over Saul's disobedience. At this very same time, Saul is setting up monuments in in praise of his victory. And he's going around parading around the countryside uh, showing the spoils of of the battle. On the one hand, you have the prophet of God who's in the dust, and then the king who has been disobedient is as high as the kite as a kite for some reason, does not compute. So what follows in the interaction between Samuel and Saul when they do meet is a perfect example of how someone with a hard and unrepentant heart responds to sin being uncovered and brought to the light. God, in his mercy, has given this interaction to us in the pages of Scripture as a warning. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, Now these things, referring to Old Testament stories, these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. This is an example to us. And so... He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So I said, this is a perfect example. This interaction between Samuel and Saul that we're about to read about is a perfect example of of a hypocrite, of how a hypocrite responds when his sins are brought to the light. So what are the characteristics of a hypocrite? First, a hypocrite is the first to speak of his obedience and is eager to flatter. 1 Samuel 15, verse 13, Samuel, said, came to, Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the commandment of the Lord. Before Samuel even has a chance to say anything, Saul welcomes him with an exuberant blessing and acclaim at obedience. He's like a car salesman who is all of a sudden your best friend when you put your foot on the, on the lot, Right? The louder he talked of his honor, this is a saying that, uh, that Tim repeats, the louder he talked of his honor, the faster we counted our spoons. The more someone talks about being innocent, the more you begin to suspect that it just ain't so. It was true with Samuel and Saul, and it's true today. The ones who are the most eager to defend their obedience and innocence are often guilty. Seeing Samuel, just even seeing the prophet, should have piqued Saul's conscience. Kind of like when you're, when you're uh, watching a movie you shouldn't and you're, you're either your wife or your parents walk into the room, right? It should have piqued his conscience. Instead, it seems to have been, had a hardening effect and, he, and he, he runs right to Samuel and, acts and, and tries to flatter him. Now in response... Samuel ignores Saul's Saul's flattery. Instead, he wastes no time in dragging Saul's sin into the light. Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear? Right? He could hear the animals, apparently. Now, Samuel puts it in the form of a question, which is an incredible thing if if you stop and think about it, because... Uh, he could have immediately come out and simply accused Saul. But instead, 
Samuel gives Saul a perfect opportunity to acknowledge his sin and to repent. He refrains, Samuel, the prophet of God, refrains from outright accusing Saul of sin, but hands him an opportunity on a golden platter to, to say, oh, right, that's right, that was, that's, that's in disobedience to God's command. So how does Saul respond? We see how he responds in verse 15. They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. And so here we come to the second mark of a hypocrite. Two, a a hypocrite is eager to blame others for his own sin. Saul immediately deflects the blame away from himself and towards the people. Now this is, in fact, the oldest trick in the book, right? It is exactly what uh, Adam did in the Garden of Eden... Uh, he, he blamed his wife instead of taking responsibility, and it is still what we do today. Now, it's particularly bad for someone in authority like Saul to pull this kind of stunt because he is shirking the very responsibility that God had given to him. Those in authority are always responsible for the actions of those under them. This is simply part and parcel of the fabric of the universe, if you will. It's part of what authority is all about. If you talk to Joe, Joe Rice was a, a captain in the Navy, right? And it doesn't matter if the captain was asleep below deck and the first mate is the one that runs the ship into the ground. If that ship is run into the ground, that captain will never be in authority over a, a vessel in the, in the Navy again. He simply won't be. It's just he's done. It's over. His career is over. He will be held responsible for the actions of the first mate. It's just the way that authority works. So even if Saul had disapproved from the very beginning of the people taking the spoils of the battle with the Amalekites, which is actually very unlikely, it was still his duty to see to it that the people obeyed the command of the Lord. And this leads me to another very important point about how we blame others for our sins. The truth is that the people probably did egg Saul on to disobedience. The truth is that they probably did urge him to let them keep the spoils of war in contradiction to God's direct command. So they were, and not only did they probably encourage him to do so, they actually did Uh, keep the spoils of war and were guilty themselves of of disobeying God's direct command. So they were guilty probably on two counts for for keeping the, the, the livestock back and for enticing Saul to follow along with them. But, and this is key, this is so important, we must remember that the sins of others, even the sin of urging us to sin, is never grounds for blaming others for our sin. If someone specifically tempts me to sin, that in itself is evil, right? It's evil, it needs to be repented of, and and confessed and repented of. But if I go ahead and commit the sin in question, 
then I am guilty, and I have no one to blame but myself. And I, I thought of, um, of you teenagers when I, when I was writing this, um, just thinking back to even being a teenager. You're at a time in your life when you're in this vortex of pressure, uh, um, of friends, uh, uh, you're, you might be dating, um, and so you'll have pressure to sin on all sides. And when you go along with the crowd, you need to remember that you are guilty, not your friends. Your friends have their own sins, and the, that sin might be, might include enticing you to sin. But you cannot blame others for your sins. You have no one to blame but yourself. Now, it's Samuel's turn to respond now, and he gives Saul yet another opportunity to repent before pronouncing judgment. This in itself is a testament, a testimony of God's patience with sinners. If we pick it up again in, in 1 Samuel 15, verse 18, Samuel says, And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? It's amazing, isn't it? He, 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 he does accuse Saul in this instance, but it's in the frame of a question again. He's giving Saul the opportunity to respond. And Saul's response in verse 20 and 21 are his last chance before judgment is pronounced. And I, I titled my sermon after these verses because I really want us to understand what's going on here. This is the, the peak, the height of, of Saul's claim at obedience. And, and so we really need to understand what he's doing so that we can avoid this very sin. Uh, it's here where Saul's claims at obedience and innocence are, are the most shrill. So Saul responds, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of, the, of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some, some, some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Here we learn the third and the fourth characteristics of hypocrites. Number three, hypocrites simply will not stop talking. It's clear at this point that Saul simply will not shut his mouth. This is such an obvious tell that we are hypocrites when we continually run our mouths. It's such an obvious tell, but we simply don't get it. And so we just keep right on talking when we, when we know very well that we should shut our mouths and listen to, to what God is speaking to us through our elders, through our wives, through even our children. Uh, we will not stop talking. And fourth, a hypocrite always has a veneer of righteousness. You, you notice that Saul repeatedly tries to make it clear that the animals were going to be sacrificed to God. They were the choicest. They were the best. Now, of course, 
That's not what God commanded him to do with the animals. But in Saul's mind, it was a good religious thing to do. So it was a way for Saul to be disobedient and still act like he was, he was being obedient. He thought to himself, well, you know, I, I don't actually want to destroy all the animals because it's such a waste. But maybe, maybe if, I, if I do this other thing, if I'm religious in this way that God hasn't actually asked me to, uh, to be, then, then he'll excuse this other uh, disobedience and we'll kind of come out even. And after all, God has commanded us to, to, to sacrifice in other places, right? So why wouldn't he be happy with it right now? <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, this is Saul attempting to cover his disobedience and to, and to hide it um, and, and to go on in his rebellion with the veneer of righteousness. So how, how do we make this applicable for us today? How is it, um, what are the sacrifices that we try to make today? Well, what are the sacrifices of modern American Christians What are the acts that we do to achieve a right standing before God in some way other than what he has explicitly commanded us to do? In in some way other than simply obeying his commands? Well, we, we do some things that are psychological and some things that are actually physical. You know, an example of something sort of in our, in our minds, um, is that, uh, we get in this cycle where we feel that uh, if, if we sinned and we just feel depressed enough and despondent enough um, and we beat up ourselves enough, think about how terrible we are enough, that God will recognize that we are really, really sorry for the sin and, and, uh, and say, okay, well, he understands and, and so he'll be forgiven um, for, for that evil. We'll all overlook that evil. But it's only as long as we demonstrate that we really understand and, and we're going we're gonna to punish ourselves um, to prove uh, to God that, that we understand. Another, another way that we bring sacrifices to God is that we stack up our good works against our sins. Okay? So, you were angry with your wife and you lashed out at her in anger? Well, Make sure that you have family devotions and then you can avoid the job of actually apologizing to her and asking her for forgiveness. You've been in sexually impure? Make sure that you come to David's mighty men and get the scripture memory down pat so that you can avoid actually going to men and confessing your sin and, and having them hold you accountable. Brothers and sisters, this kind of work, this work and others like it, are thoroughly obnoxious to God. God detests these attempts to sneak around the plain commands of Scripture. Now, we need to contrast these these responses and the interaction between Saul and Samuel with David in 2 Samuel 12. Now, I don't have time for all of us to turn there and to actually read the account, but you'll, you'll remember the story, I think. David was the king after Saul, and he was also guilty of some very terrible sin. He committed adultery, and then to try to cover it up, he had the, man, uh, he had the woman's husband killed, murdered, right? 
So he commits adultery, tries to cover it up with murder, and, and at the time, Nathan is a prophet of God, and it's Nathan's job to come and confront David with his sin. How is the interaction between Nathan and David different than what we find between Saul and Samuel? First, uh, the prophet Nathan, and, and of course, uh, feel free to check with me after this. You can, you can, uh, you'll find it. It's, it's a story in 2 Samuel 12. But first, the prophet Nathan is the first to speak. If you remember, when, when, when uh, Saul greeted Samuel, Saul was exuberant, and he tried to flatter uh, Samuel. He said, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have obeyed the, the voice of the Lord. He's the first person to speak. In, in the case of Nathan and David, it's the prophet Nathan who is the first to speak. Second, David doesn't blame anyone else when his sin is brought to the light. But instead, he simply replies, I have sinned against the Lord. And in case you, th- you think that this is uh, fake or, or hypocritical, um, we read in Psalm 51 of, of uh, David's account of this sin. And he writes, Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David doesn't lay his sin at the, at the doorstep of anybody else, and he, but he, he acknowledges that he is the one to blame. He is the one who is unrighteous. Third, there is no veneer of righteousness. There is no uh, attempt at pointing to some other work that would, that would cancel out this disobedience. There's, there's no attempt to cover up this evil. David accepts the fact that he is wholly sinful and needy before God. Back in Psalm 51 again, do you remember what David says? Uh, in sin, my mother conceived me, right? He acknowledges that he is full of sin. And there's no, no attempt to cover that up. And fourth, David's only words to Nathan when his sin is uncovered are, I have sinned against the Lord. That's it. If you read the account, uh, Nathan doesn't have to point it out multiple times. He doesn't have to whack David over the head with it repeatedly before David gets the message. He simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. The prophet Nathan isn't even done pronouncing judgment on, on, uh, on David before David acknowledges his sin. After David acknowledges his sin, the extra judgment that, that David's son is going to die is pronounced. So uh, he doesn't, he, he acknowledges his sin and he is silent uh, before, before God and before Nathan the prophet. Now brothers and sisters, this story of Saul and Samuel describes us pretty well, doesn't it? If you have ears to hear, we, we must hear this example and recognize that this is describing us. Now, there are three key points that I want us to remember as we leave here today, okay? And, um, and if you don't grab a hold of these three points, uh, you will not have hope, and you will not have hope that gives you the power to obey God. So first, 
We need to remember that delayed or partial obedience is rebellion and idolatry. Okay? God cannot be mocked. What you reap, you will sow. You cannot cheat a little here, fudge a little there, and expect to get away with it in the end. You know, whether, whether you're talking about taxes, or the time you spend at work, or tests that you take at, at school, uh, you cannot, delayed or partial obedience is rebellion and idolatry. God's grace was removed from Saul. And we, we read about that actually in, in our scripture reading today, didn't we? Uh, in Romans. How, how God can remove his grace from, from us. Who's to say that God's grace will remain with you if you continue in your rebellion? And if, um, the other thing that I thought of as, as, as I was putting this together is um, I thought about my children, right? I have two children now and I'm just starting to learn how to be a parent, how to be a dad. And I have to ask myself, am I teaching this to my children, parents, Are you teaching your children that delayed or partial obedience is rebellion and idolatry? Do your children understand that they must obey you joyfully and exuberantly? You will, after all, interact with your children in the same way that you think God interacts with you. You will not delight in the obedience of your children unless you actually believe that God delights in your obedience. You will overlook the disobedience of your children if you actually think that God is pleased to simply overlook your sin. And this leads me to the the second thing that I want us to carry home with us today, and that is obedience is what God is after. Scripture, it says in in our passage in uh, 1 Samuel 15, Behold, To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Now, I don't want you to hear me saying that God is not pleased for us to have a contrite heart and a soft and tender spirit before Him, one that's willing to confess our sin. Of course, that is what God wants. But what I'm trying to do is make a distinction between the soft and tender heart and all these sacrifices that we make to God, uh, whether they're physical or psychological, uh, in an attempt to go ahead with our disobedience and, and, um, and act like we're actually obeying God. All these sacrifices are hateful to Him. God does not... God desires our obedience, right? If you're a man caught in a trap, in the trap of pornography, for instance. God doesn't want you to be constantly caught in this cycle. He's not satisfied with you to be constantly caught in this cycle and just always feeling bad after every time you've given yourself to the sin. He doesn't, he doesn't want you to just be beating yourself all, up all, all the time. He wants you to obey and to be free from the sin of pornography. He wants your obedience. He wants your joyful, exuberant obedience. And this leads me, brothers and sisters, to the the last key point. And without this thing, you will not have any hope. What you need to understand 
and we see this in 1 Samuel 15, is that obedience is an act of faith. All right? We're not talking, this isn't like law over here and gospel over here. Obedience is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is an act of faith that Jesus Christ has come and paid the penalty for our sin. And this, brothers and sisters, is why disobedience and rebellion is the same as idolatry. Saul, when he decided to disobey God and to, and to, to just slightly fudge and, 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 and uh, do his own thing, was saying uh, he, thought, he thought that Saul thought that he could get a better deal elsewhere than what he could get from God. But brothers and sisters, God's commands are only as hard to obey as his glory is hard to cherish and his promises are hard to believe. All right? God's promises to us are, are, are wonderful, they're delightful, and they give us everything that we could possibly want and need. In, in Deuteronomy 30, it says, This commandment which I command you this day is not too hard for you. And in 1 John 5, it says, This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. You will never obey God until the promises of Scripture are sweet to you. Until they are the thing that you long for and that you, that you hunger after. What are those promises? Those promise, the promises of God to, to people, to us, are all throughout Scripture. And, and so all I can do as I close today is give you just a few to whet your appetite. In Psalm uh, 37, we read, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Better, another example, Better is the, is the little of righteousness than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. And again, I have been young, and now I am old. Yet I have, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. Or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. And finally, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. So, brothers and sisters, God is our refuge and our strength. We must pay attention to the warning in 1 Samuel 15 and, and, and acknowledge uh, the, the sin in our hearts. Acknowledge that we too are hypocrites. And we must turn to Jesus Christ for the, the hope that it is in Him that we will have the power and the strength to obey. We must fly to Him for help. Let's pray.